Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Psalm 102. The superscription here is fairly lengthy. It says, A prayer of one afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. The word complaint there has more the sense of moaning than maligning. It is a psalm expressing pain and sorrow. But pain and sorrow over what? On the one hand, it often sounds like the psalmist is bemoaning his own personal bodily sickness. He says, for example, in verse 3, my bones burn like a furnace. Or in verse 7, I lie awake. Or verse 11, I wither away like grass. But in the second half of the psalm, the source of anguish appears to be the lamentable state of the city of Jerusalem. He says in verse 13, you will arise and have pity on Zion. It is the time to favor her. In verse 20, he talks about God hearing the groans of the prisoners and setting free those who were doomed to die. So, is this an individual lament or a prayer for national renewal? That's the question that tends to occupy commentators in their attempts to introduce this psalm. Some see it as a composite meaning they think that there was an original individual lament that was picked up by a composer in the exile and used as the basis for a national hymn pleading for restoration. And that could be. If that was how this psalm came to be, then it wouldn't be an offense to anyone's conception of the doctrine of inerrancy. The use of sources does not negate inspiration. Luke, the evangelist, mentions using sources for his gospel. So that doesn't offend us, and neither should this. If a prophet in the exile noticed a pattern in God's dealings with David or Asaph and used that to stir up faith for a fresh work of renewal and redemption in his own day, then so be it. That's how the Bible works. I think that would be marvelous, and it wouldn't bother me at all as a committed inerrantist. But is that what happened? Possibly. But I think it more likely that this was an original composition combining personal lament and prayerful anticipation. Willem van Gemmeren takes that approach. He says, The structure of the psalm reveals two basic literary elements, lament and prophetic hymnic. Closed quote. He goes on to define prophetic hymnic as a special exilic development. The godly felt that they too had been rejected by the Lord and that the fulfillment of all the prophetic promises was in doubt. The purpose of the prophetic hymnic section was to set ablaze a fire of hope in the promises of the Lord within the hearts of the godly. Close quote. So in a sense, the psalmist's own sufferings serve to heighten and inspire his prayer for personal and national deliverance. He saw himself as a parable of the nation, as it were, 
I am laid low. I am sick. I am made an object of mockery as are we. Have mercy on us, God, for we are your covenant people. Now, many commentators over the years have taken some version of that approach. Spurgeon, for example, sees the sufferings of the individual psalmist as merely an illustration, an example of the suffering of the nation as a whole, which is by far the main concern of the plaintiff in this composition. So Spurgeon says, this is a patriot's lament over his country's distress. He arrays himself in the griefs of his nation as in a garment of sackcloth and casts her dust and ashes upon his head as the ensigns and causes of his sorrows. He has his own private woes and personal enemies. He is, moreover, sore afflicted in body by sickness. But the miseries of his people cause him a far more bitter anguish, and this he pours out in an earnest, pathetic lamentation." Close quote. Now, in terms of authorship for this psalm, we cannot say for certain because the superscription provides no specific attribution. W.S. Plumer actually thinks that it may have been written by Daniel. He notices several similarities between the wording of this psalm and the first three verses of Daniel 9, and indeed several intriguing similarities do exist. Daniel 9, 1-3 says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Closed quote. So, Daniel says that he became aware that it was time for God to restore his people and that he immediately undertook to pray and to make pleas for mercy with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Well, that sense of timing is one of the main themes in Psalm 102, and it mentions praying and pleading with sackcloth and ashes. So maybe it was written by Daniel. Now, Calvin is less ready than Plumer to identify a specific author. He says more generally, whoever of the prophets composed this psalm, it is certain that he dictated it to the faithful as a form of prayer for the reestablishment of the temple and the city, close quote. So, this is a prayer for God to be merciful to his people in exile and to move speedily to rescue those in prison and to restore the city and the temple of the Lord. It is a prayer for rescue, redemption, and renewal. That is the immediate context and the most immediate meaning of the psalm. However, it has generally been understood also in a typological sense, meaning that while it was originally crafted as a prayer for use in the latter days of the exile, in anticipation of the coming work of salvation foretold by God through the prophet Jeremiah. It also, and even ultimately, looks 
forward to the future work of God in redeeming, restoring, and renewing the church. So, for example, John Morrison says here, As the literal Jerusalem was a type of the spiritual, and the rebuilding of the former was a type of the revival and glory of the latter, we may regard the psalm as bearing a special reference to the times of the gospel and to the universal establishment of the faith in Christ when the eternal kingdom of Messiah shall be set up from the rising to the setting of the sun, close quote. So, just as God chastised Israel by sending her into exile, and then when the time was right, he moved to rebuild and restore her, so also he may chastise the church so as to purify her and so as to renew her to even higher and more glorious heights. This then becomes a prayer that people may use in any season of darkness and decline in anticipation of future works of mercy, restoration, and renewal. Now, interestingly, and not unrelatedly, in the history of the church, this psalm has also been identified and used as one of the seven penitential psalms, despite that no sins are specifically confessed within it. But certainly, it assumes sin behind the righteous chastisement that provides the immediate context, and it leans into the idea that the season for such chastisements has come to an end, and it implores God for favor, blessing, and renewal on the other side. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. Prayer is a way of pushing through the clouds of darkness and depression and demanding an audience with Almighty God. That's exactly what the psalmist is doing here. He is clearly sick or ill or old. He is living in exile away from the worship of God, seemingly in a time of great declension. He could very easily succumb to depression and despair, but he will not. He lifts up his soul to God and he begs God to see him, to look at him, to turn his face toward him and to do it quickly lest he perish in the day of distress. Human beings often feel the disparity between our sense of time and the divine sense of time, particularly when we are in a desperate situation. We know that to God, a thousand years is like a single day, the span of a human life like the blink of an eye. We're a mist and a vapor. And we worry that God may move so slow that whatever kindnesses he has planned, we won't be alive to see them. So the psalmist here asks for God's swift attention. This is a bold prayer. He continues in that vein in verse 3. For my days pass away like smoke, and my bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass, and has withered. I forget to eat my bread. Because of my loud groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. 
the psalmist is so upset that he can no longer eat. He's in mourning. Now, again, we wonder whether he is describing a physical illness or the soul sickness of someone who takes very seriously the low condition of the covenant community. Spurgeon interpreted these verses as expressions of lamentation over the fallen state of the Old Testament church. And he expresses a wish, actually, to see more people mourning today over the state of the New Testament church. He says, It will be a very long time before the distresses of the church of God make some Christians shrivel into anatomies. But this good man was so moved with sympathy for Zion's ills that he was wasted down to skin and bones, closed quote. The church needs men and women who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. Men and women whose eyes are open to the sad state of affairs within the church today and who are legitimately disturbed thereby. We have plenty of people upset enough to tweet and upset enough to post and upset enough to mock and criticize, but how many are disturbed enough to pray and to fast and to shrivel away into anatomies, as Spurgeon says here? God help. Lord, send us people who are affected by our present exile, who notice our present exile, and who will fast, mourn, and pray for our deliverance. Verse 6. I'm like a desert owl of the wilderness, like an owl of the waste places. I lie awake. I'm like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. All the day my enemies taunt me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse. For I eat ashes like bread and mingle tears with my drink. Because of your indignation and anger, for you have taken me up and thrown me down. My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. The psalmist here compares himself to a variety of lonely birds. Those who mourn often feel as though they are on the edge of the crowd. They don't get the joke. They are considered poor company. They see what others don't or won't. And as a result, they can't seem to join the party. The psalmist's spiritual and physical affliction becomes a source of mockery. His enemies think he is weak or morose, or maybe even a little mentally unstable. For I eat ashes like bread, he says. Penitents in those days would throw ashes above their heads as a gesture of humility and remorse before God. The psalmist has done this so much that the ashes are stuck in his beard and fall into his mouth and constitute his only food. He's an extremist, his enemies declare. He is unhinged. But the psalmist is connected to something his critics can never understand. He is seeing with spiritual eyes. He sees the exile as not merely an accident of politics or history. He sees it for what it is, an expression of divine hostility towards sin. You have taken me up and thrown me down. My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. It is remarkable how similar this psalm is in places 
to Psalm 90, written by Moses. Listen to verses 4 to 7 of that psalm. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath we are dismayed, closed quote. You can hear the same sense that he is being ground down to ash by the wrath and anger of Almighty God. You can hear the same concern that his own life will come to an end before the long, slow, patient plan of God reaches the stage of redemption and renewal. The psalmist here in Psalm 102 is aware of his faults and his finitude. Verse 12, but you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. You will arise and have pity on Zion. It is the time to favor her. The appointed time has come. Whether he lives to see it or not, the psalmist knows that God's purposes always end in mercy. His anger is but for the moment. His favor lasts for a lifetime. He may press us down, but he will lift us up because he is God. And that's what God does. Spurgeon says here, God will not always leave his church in a low condition. He may for a while hide himself from her in chastisement to make her see her nakedness and poverty apart from himself. But in love, he must return to her and stand up in her defense to work her welfare for the time to favor her. Yea, the set time is come. Divine decree has appointed a season for blessing the church. And when that period has arrived, blessed she shall be, closed quote. I mentioned that the sense of timing was an important theme in this psalm. In Daniel 9, 1 to 3, the prophet becomes aware through his study of Jeremiah that the exile was decreed by God to last one full, long human lifetime. And that time was just about up. And that emboldened Daniel to begin to pray with urgency and fervency for what God himself had promised. And so that's what he does. And that's what the psalmist is doing here. Whether that psalmist was Daniel or someone else listening to Daniel and joining him in his prayers. You will arise and have pity on Zion, Lord. It is time to favor her. The appointed time has come, Lord. Verse 14. For your servants hold her stones dear and have pity on her dust. Nations will fear the name of the Lord, and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. For the Lord builds up Zion. He appears in his glory. He regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. Let this be recorded for a generation to come, so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord, that he looked down from his holy height. From heaven the Lord looked 
at the earth, to hear the groans of the prisoners, to set free those who were doomed to die, that they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord and in Jerusalem his praise when peoples gather together and kingdoms to worship the Lord. The return from exile is often depicted in Scripture as a second exodus. It reinforces the general pattern. When God's people are very low, when they are destitute, they pray to him, and he remembers them, and he delivers them, and brings them into a place of peace. That's the general pattern. And that pattern continues and is greatly amplified in the New Testament age. John Calvin says here, the prophets are wont in celebrating the deliverance from the Babylonian captivity to extend it to the coming of Christ, closed quote. So this amplification of the Exodus pattern in the return from exile becomes a lens for anticipating the Christ pattern. Now, that's a fairly standard interpretation of these verses. So, for example, the Tyndale Old Testament commentary says here, this group of verses echoes and expands some aspects of verses 12 to 17, but gazes now into the distant future when this deliverance will be the one that people sing about. No longer the song of Moses alone, but also, as Revelation 15, 3 will put it, the song of the Lamb. Closed quote. Thanks be to God. Verse 23. He has broken my strength in mid-course. He has shortened my days. Oh, my God, I say, take me not away in the midst of my days, you whose years endure throughout all generations. Here the psalmist breaks forth in his own voice to express his concern that because of his personal sufferings, he won't be alive to witness the redeeming work of God that is coming. He reminds God of the significant difference between the human and the divine sense of time. He says in verse 25, Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. So in the immediate context, this is the psalmist saying to God that you're like a rich man who outlives his clothing. You wear the universe, as it were, as a display of your glory and greatness, but you take it off when it begins to show wear, but you live on and you remain unchanged. The subtle message, of course, is that we are not like that, God. The psalmist is saying, I will not outlive the universe. I may not outlive the exile. So please, eternal God, move swiftly. He ends on a note of confidence. The children of your servants will dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. So I know that you will do it, he says, but I would like to be alive to see it. That's the sum of these closing verses. Martin Luther compares the overall sentiment here to the one expressed in the opening verses of the Lord's Prayer. He says, 
This psalm is a prayer of an afflicted and tempted heart, miserably sighing and praying for deliverance and the coming of the kingdom of God. And indeed, the whole sum and substance of this psalm is, Thy kingdom come. Closed quote. So when you pray, Thy kingdom come, you are saying, God, I know you'll do it. I, I know that the cosmos will be renewed and all sin and all causes of sin will be removed so that the righteous can shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father forever. I know that will happen but I'd sure like to be alive to see it happen. Come quickly, Lord. Come now. Come today, if it be thy will. As I said, this is a good prayer for people living near the end of the exile, however that time of exile is conceived. Now, as to the New Testament use of verses 25 to 28 in the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verses 10 to 12, Peter O'Brien is very helpful here. He says, the author of Hebrews focuses not on the description of human suffering in the psalm, but on the words about the divine majesty, which are now applied to the Son, closed quote. So the author of Hebrews is interested in that description of God as majestic and eternal and as manifested through the glory and wonder of creation. And he takes that and applies it to Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. That God, who the psalmist worried was so above it all as to need reminding of man's finitude, actually took on finitude without sacrificing infinitude, becoming the Son of Man, Jesus, Emmanuel, our rescue, redemption, and renewal in space and time. Thanks be to God. Thank you, friends, for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those at intotheword.ca. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just type Into the Word into the search bar. If you'd like to contribute to this listener-supported program, go to the website and click the Give bar in the top right corner. Once again, that's intotheword.ca. We hope to see you again real soon right here for another episode of Into the Word. Thank you.